couper les doigts avec ça. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and this week, oh guys, I've got a mega preview of what Canadian content is coming up at the Toronto After Dark Film Festival. If you're in Toronto, you can get your tickets right now at torontoafterdark.com. If you're not in Toronto, keep an eye on the website because they do a really good job of letting you know what's been picked up for distribution and what you're going to be able to see near you very soon. First up is an interview with programmers Christian Burgess and Justin McConnell, who fill us in a bit on the history of the festival and some of the stuff you can expect this year. Then I have three very brief interviews with Canadian filmmakers Zach Gain about his film Homewrecker, Justin Harding about Making Monsters, and finally, Jonas Chernick and Jeremy Lalonde about James versus his future self. I'll let you know a little bit more about each movie before the interview. Enjoy. How do you guys go about programming the festival? Uh, do you want to take this first, Christian, or should I? You go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll follow up. I don't know. I think there's a lot of misconception, I guess, about what somebody does when they're programming a festival. We do take in a ton of submissions. So we have, you know, through Film Freeway and Without a Box or Waivers or whatever, we do take in a lot of submissions. But one of the things I'm active with, I'm more of a scout programmer, so I may watch some of the submissions, but I mostly, I go to film festivals around the world or I go to the con market there. I scour other film festivals, programs. I try and collect screeners from distrib distribution contacts that I built up over the year by reaching out to them directly and going, what do you have? And then they'll send me like six films and that gets shared with the team. Christian's got his own set of contacts too. So we basically actively try and find the best films we can to play each year from around the world. And it's an ongoing process that starts probably in about February, January or February, before we even start taking submissions. That being said, uh, we, we definitely find some awesome gems out of the cold submissions too. I read a lot on the industry stuff, like various genres, right? So it's sort of a year round, sort of like tracking of films and you see what's out there, you see what happens. And then when sort of the big tier festival starting with say Sundance in January happens, you kind of catch wind of films that are on the horizon and you know they'll probably play other festivals going forward because we're in October, so it's it gives mm -hmm. the time. The big change that's happening right now is that the windows are smaller. So what mm -hmm. you'll see, you'll see a film come and hit Sundance in January. It might already be on VOD in March. So you could be tracking a movie, but then you also have to make sure that the movie's even available to you. So a lot of really great stuff we just can't play because it's out already or it's been bought or that particular company goes, yeah, we're not playing anymore for festivals. We're going to drop it on Netflix in three weeks or whatever it is. And being in Canada, because, you know, just the just as Justin's well aware, just the, the distribution minefield, I call it, because things change on a, um, on a dime like nowadays so quick. What do you think the theater experience and seeing everything live that like for the audience and why should people come to the festival? Energy is the first one. There's a big difference between sitting at home on your couch alone or even with, you know, your friend and, and just watching a movie on a, you know, a 50 inch screen or whatever it is and being in a room of 500 people or if this is a shorts program, 300, 350 people, whatever it is. And having everybody react to the the humor and the scares and the the action moments, like when something puts you on the edge of your seat, you can sense the rest of the theater there too. And I think that that's something about the communal screening experience and the the live presentation experience a bunch of people in a dark room that you just can't get at home. And also festival audiences are very different than your general 
um, you know, run of the mill, uh, run of the mill is the wrong word, but your, your regular mainstream audience is going to a movie on a Friday night. They're more respectful. They don't have their phones out and they're there for the experience. Um, there's also this other, and this applies to comedy, but it applies to horror as well. I forget who said it, but, uh, the, the idea that when you go to see a movie, you're really only seeing half the movie because your own perception is really only catching, especially on a first time watch is really only catching you might catch all the beats of the story, but you're not hitting every little nuance. Well, the other half of the audience is probably seeing those nuances. And as a crowd, you actually catch more of the film. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the Canadian things that are up on the menu that are coming up in our preview. What are you guys excited about? On our opening night is uh, Witches in the Woods. We also have on the Friday is James versus his future self. We have Homewrecker. Making Monsters. Making Monsters. And the uh, newest edition. Enhanced and Contracts uh, are both low-budget action movies, um, but that's kind of where, and they involve martial arts, but it's where that's kind of where things end in terms of similarities there. Enhanced is more of a sci-fi, slightly glossier thing, and Contracts is a really scrappy shot on weekends, but guys with a lot of passion and talent throwing everything they can at the wall and seeing what's and it's a little rough around the edges, but it's really endearing and really entertaining. And I really, really enjoy James versus his future self, which again rides the line of the genre a bit. It's a higher profile movie for a Canadian movie it's with Daniel Stern and uh, Cleopatra Coleman. Yeah, that's it. Cleopatra Coleman from, from The Last Man on Earth. It's got a really great cast, but what it is, is it, it with all of its sci-fi weirdness and all of its comedy, it's just a really sweet love story at, at its heart with a lot of sort of like raunchy, time travel inspired uh, comedy. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's a little lighter in terms of the fare we normally play, but uh, I I, th- I still think the audience is going to love it. I think I think James versus the Future Self is it sort of hits the it checks all the boxes on a lot of genres. Like it's a relationship movie. It's um, you know a bit of a sci-fi twist to it. It's also a dark comedy. It's also funny. Daniel Stern's fantastic in it, of course. Yeah, it's. I think it checks a lot of boxes off for Tad this year. So, talk to me about uh, some gems that you guys have had in previous years from Canadian films. People can go check out. You have to go see. You got to see Manborg. You've got to see Father's Day, um, The Void, which is technically not an Astron Six movie, but uh, we did play in the past. Anything from those that group of filmmakers is is really fun. A number of the Black Swan films are pretty solid. Uh, last year we played I'll Take Your Dead, which is just recently out on uh, Blu-ray now, and you can watch it on VOD in Canada, which is a solid uh, supernatural thriller by Chad Archibald. We played Robbery last year. Robbery is uh, yeah. a, a, another line rider where it, it might not on the surface feel like a Tad film, but it ends up being a really endearing thriller that uh, we just thought the audience needed to see. Impossible Horror, there's one I, I, I'd love to... I'd love more people to know about. Uh, very mm. underground, very indie, but a great female-driven story of two young women trying to track down uh, basically a blood-curdling scream that keeps popping up in their neighborhood. And then as they uncover the secret, things get weirder and scarier and stranger. Uh, it's just very well made for the its minuscule budget. Defective's kind of solid. Oh, Game of Death's solid. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Game of Death is uh, from, from Quebec. Anybody who likes... A lot of gore and unpredictable deaths in the final destination kind of way. Uh, Game of Death is cool. Or, um, you know, random exploding heads are always fun. And uh, that's one that I think went way under the radar. And Poor Agnes is another one starring Laura Burke, who was one of the leads in my film as a serial killer. I think that you got to check that one out, too. 
And finally, let's tell people one more time where they can get their tickets for the festival. TorontoAfterDark.com and the Cineplex website. And yeah. you get scene points. Um, we even have a double scene points night on the Monday of our festival. So, yeah, it's good to have that as a venue partner. It's as easy as buying a regular movie ticket to Scotiabank Theatre. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Christian. Justin, this was an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Zach Gain, Precious Chung, and Alex Esso go back a long way, as you'll hear in the interview. And their new project and Zach's debut feature film, Homewrecker, was also a long time in the making. This is the story of a budding friendship that very quickly goes off the rails when one friend proves to be after more than just friendship. It's a comedy with a lot of blood, a score by Doug Marsh from Built to Spill, and some serious dare-you-to-look moments. Here's my interview with Zach Gain. Why is Toronto After Dark Film Festival the right film festival to host Homewrecker? I mean, having been uh, born and raised in Toronto, I've been going to After Dark for so long um, that it's it's nothing short of miraculous to me that I get to be uh, involved in the festival. So that that's an easy one in terms of why After Dark film was shot in Toronto. It's local. Would love nothing more than a genre festival like After Dark for our hometown premiere. Now, the show is driven by its two stars, Precious Chong and Alex Esso, and yes. they wrote it alongside you. Tell me a little bit about the process of writing that script with three people. It was uh, it was actually a very long-winded writing process in the sense that this film uh, was first thought up in 2009. So Alex and I both went to, we're both living in Vancouver at the time. And we had just made this uh, short film called Free to Go, um, which uh, I think surpassed all of our expectations, including our own. And um, I was able to, to get some further work off of that. And somebody actually commissioned me to write this sort of love triangle, cliche, Lifetime-esque movie. And when I got that assignment, I thought, all right, well, how can I turn this cliche into something that I personally can get behind and can get excited about. And then I wrote what would basically be the skeleton of Homewrecker with uh, with Alex in tow. She contributed to the treatment as well. And then I basically put it out of my mind for like a decade. And then I was just sort of like going through old stuff and I, I remembered it. And then um, so I've been working with Precious for the last six years or so on uh, on her show Sex and the Single Parent, um, which we do for Funny or Die. Um, so we've established a great working relationship. And then I started thinking about Homewrecker again for the first time in years. And I was like, oh, oh my God, I, I know these two people. And now that I'm 10 years older than I was when this was first conceived, I feel like I can access what this movie is about in a way that I was far too young to before. So I called them both up separately and I said, you guys want to do this? They were both thrilled to do it. And then that winter, I was sort of hibernating in Los Angeles, which is where Alex lives. And then Alex and I did a bunch of work on the script. Do you, do you know that uh, Precious is Tommy Chong's daughter? Precious came up to Los Angeles because she was on Celebrity Family Feud with her family. Anyway, so then the three of us hung out and uh, batted out what would become the central ideas for the film. And we were basically going to shoot it in like two months from that point. So then the plan was I would return to Toronto, which I did. And then Precious and I basically did the script um, from beginning to end um, with all the ideas that Alex helped with. And um, and the idea was to improv a lot, you know, just to do like a script that was a skeleton. And when Alex could come, you know, she would help with more. And due to timing and due to the fact that I think Precious and I kind of did a pretty good job that nobody really wanted to deviate too far from yeah, we, we kind of stuck to the script. But yeah, that was our uh, our scattered 
collaboration. Now, this also has elements of late 80s, early 90s thriller kind of thing going on, but still with like that modern sensibility of the wink at that. Uh, (laughs) Did that kind of early cinema influence you and the way you make movies and the way this film was made? I mean, not necessarily on the way I make movies, period. Um, I'm, um, you know, a total cinephile and all that. So if I'm entering a new project, I'll surround myself in in a bubble of movies that inspire the project. So in with this one, I'm I'm watching everything from Single White Female, which I think is a reference to the early 90s thrillers you're kind of talking about. Definitely, yeah. To like Joan Crawford and Straight Jacket. I just like couldn't wait to make a over-the-hill Joan Crawford out of Precious. Now, you're definitely adding your own elements to this, specifically in the soundtrack, and you have a bunch of abstract visuals here. Talk to me about how that kind of came about and why you decided to put a lot of emphasis on those two things. Just out of curiosity, do you are you familiar with the band Built to Spill? I am, yes, of course. That's not necessarily a given. Uh, more often than not, I come across people who aren't, who they're not necessarily on the radar. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm actually just kind of still struggling to wake up this morning because I saw Built to Spill last night. Uh, okay. And, uh, and I get to see them again tonight. Um, but yeah, so when uh, when I sat down with uh, Doug Marsh to kind of come up with what would be the theme for the film. There were a lot of different ideas about the style and what um, what direction we should go. Um, our producers kind of really were fighting for a distinct horror score that uh, really told the audience you're watching a horror film, specifically considering this is not a clear-cut horror film and they kind of wanted it to be. <laughs> <laughs> so there was some pressure to do that at first, and I tried it. And I didn't like it very much. Or I just didn't think it was the heart of the film. And then alternatively, we could have doubled down on the comedy and uh, and maybe and, and the kitsch and gone for something 80s, you know, in the Cindy Lauper feel, um, that aesthetic. Uh, but ultimately, to me, the, the heart of the film is something of a I, I, I often call it a heartbreak melodrama disguised as a horror comedy. I can see that. Okay. Um, I thought me and Doug could play with the, um, you know, the typical four chord cliche chords that are, uh, that are, that you hear a lot in fifties music. Um, that sort of teen dream. Uh, do you, do you know the, the chords I'm talking about? Like, dun, 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 dun. I know you're not going to be able to transcribe that, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's the bones of so many songs. I think there's even a medley on YouTube where somebody kind of like, sings a hundred songs in three minutes with the same chords jumping off of this cliche point i thought it'd be really cool to infuse that with um doug's very unique style and yeah to just feel the tears mostly and uh, obviously it gets to be a little boozy at some points depending on where we're at in the film um sometimes we try to play it for suspense but um that was the jumping off point I like overtures, and I felt that the the score was deserving of one, and uh, and I wanted uh, I wanted something to give the audience a bit of a headspace to fall into it, to fall into our protagonist Michelle's sadness, what she's currently going through. Um, so I thought that would be one means of doing that while simultaneously foreshadowing. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, the colors are complementary to this very girly aesthetic, for lack of a better term. 
So I thought for all these reasons, it felt right to me. Let's talk about directing those action sequences. You said you didn't have a ton of time, but there's, I mean, you've really packed this full of a (laughs) lot of moments of people doing unspeakable things to each other. What was that like doing when you have a limited budget, limited time, but you need to make sure that your actors are safe? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. We, uh, this was such a small film. It was such a DIY production that we were all totally confident we could do, but my only stipulation entering this thing is that since there's so much, so little uh, supervision, since we're so left to our own devices, all I care about at the end of the day is that nobody gets hurt. That was of utmost importance, of course. These are all my dear friends, and even if they weren't. <laughs> um, but um, so anyway, to help us do that was uh, Precious's ex-husband's wife sarah sarah murphy dyson is this ballerina and occasional stunt woman and choreographer and uh and she was on set for the difficult stuff and she was instrumental at educating us on how to break up a stunt into like eight pieces eight extremely simple movements um that on their own are uh, risk-free, but when cut together can uh, can sell violence. Have you seen this with an audience yet? Yes, I just, I'm buzzing off of Fantastic Fest. Oh, perfect. Okay, so you were actually physically in the room, because sometimes directors don't go. So you were there, you saw it. I, I would never miss it. <laughs> you want to know how people are going to be, like, what they're, what they're going to go, ooh, for. Uh, what was the vibe in the room, and what are you hoping uh, will happen at uh, Toronto After Dark? I mean, I hope that the audience at After Dark is an iota of as enthusiastic as they were in Austin, because because Austin surpassed all of my expectations. The, it was an uproarious crowd, and it was so fun to watch. I even forgot that I was, you know, watching our own film, and uh, and and just like what a delight! What 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 more could you ask for when you go see any movie, whether it's mine or or somebody else's, than uh, than an audience that engages with it and is having a good time together. Um, and at the Alamo Draft House, specifically for the first screening, which ha- which was at midnight, and you know they have waiters, so uh, there was a bit of a boozy buzz in the crowd, and just everybody had so much fun with it, and uh, I'll never forget that <laughs> as long as I live. I hope Toronto is even just half as receptive as Austin was, but I, I think they will be. I think this is a fun movie to watch with your friends when you watch. A movie, not not necessarily all you want, but you kind of live for those moments that are so great that you just get applause from the audience. And when it happened last night, I won't say which moment, I it was just the most uh, unexpected, satisfying, full circle moment of my short lived career. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully it's not the last. Uh, that's, no. That definitely won't be. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Zach. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Becky. Jeremy Harding and Rob Brenner are no strangers to the horror world. Their short film Latched played at TIFF and Cookie played at South by Southwest, among their many other accomplishments. Sitting in the straight slasher genre with some brutal kills is Making Monsters. In it, a couple who are famous for their internet prank channel get invited to stay at a friend's middle-of-nowhere retreat, and it all seems like a lot of fun, until it really, really isn't. You know how these things go. Here's my interview with Jeremy Harding. You guys are no strangers whatsoever to the festival circuit, as we're talking about. I mean, you've done TIFF, South by Southwest, Fantastic Fest, Shriek Fest, all the other words that have great adjectives in them before the festival title. Why is Toronto After Dark the right festival for this one? You know, they used to have a zombie walk, and uh, people would dress up and then make their way towards the festival. And I always thought, oh, one day I need to have a film in that festival. One day. 
Um, and then many years later, I made my first short film, Point of View, and in 2015, it screened at Toronto After Dark, and we won Best Canadian Short Film, I think like a bronze. And then I went for the first time with my film and, and kind of fell in love with the festival. And then um, the next year, I came back with Cookie, my, my second short film, and then we won the same award. And then the year after, the same thing with my other film, Latched. So year after year, this festival has really been supportive of our films. So I'm beyond excited about Toronto After Dark this year. And this is a great, really supportive audience. Uh, they always react really big. You're always going to get a lot of reaction to the stuff that's really great and freaky. But how much do you actually take from those audience reactions? Well, I, a lot. These scripts and these films are designed very carefully to to draw out a certain reaction. So, you know, this and, and this particular movie is quite funny, or at least it's trying to be quite funny. So the reactions mean a lot. It's like you're, you know, you're trying, you're trying in some ways as a filmmaker to play the audience like a, like an orchestra, you know, like Hitchcock used to, used to try to do. It's all about the reaction. I mean, the whole point of, of making a suspenseful film is to play uh, with the audience reaction. And, and that's the fun of it. It's about misguiding them and, and creating an experience that feels really different where people can't really predict what's going on and then surprising them constantly. And that's, I don't know. That's always the goal for us. One of the beautiful things about the modern world and modern horror films is that we have such a great classic, I guess, lineage of tropes and ideas and things we can then play with. And you guys have, it's what looks like is going to be a couple people going out to the middle of nowhere in the woods and things aren't quite what they seem. We won't say anything more than that. How do you go about then subverting that expectation when you're dealing with these classic tropes? It's kind of interesting, I guess, in this case. I mean, I love making horror films, but I don't actually love watching a lot of horror films. And I don't necessarily pay too much attention to what the tropes are or should be, which in some, for some people and for some festivals, you know, that's a problem and they won't like this movie. But I, I just don't even really think about it too much in terms of what are the rules of this genre? What should I be doing? How should I be um, changing these? I, I just sort of, I just sort of think about what the story is and how to, how to create suspense in a very unique way. And so I just approach it very differently. And like I said, I think, you know, I, some festivals didn't take this movie. And, and I talked to the festival directors and they explained why they, they didn't like it. And other festivals like Shriek Fest, we win, you know, best horror films. So it's, it's, uh, it's, a diff it's, a, it's, it's very interesting that way, this particular movie. Yeah, and, and my whole thing is just trying to create an experience that's um, unexpected. And something your film is playing with in this is uh, the idea of technology now being scary. And these are now implementing new fears for modern audiences. Okay, what is the internet doing to us? What are we, uh, how are we viewing human beings as human beings anymore? And, uh, and what is the concept of a show? And what are the lines within that? Using those new technological things, do you think that presents a whole new playground for filmmakers? Absolutely. And you're seeing a lot of that in the film festival circuit and in different films. In this, in this story, for me, it was really more about finding fame online and how easy, how easy it is now to find an audience. If you work hard, you can really develop an audience and create a career online. And I've been watching a lot of like Gary Vaynerchuk or Casey Neistat videos and these people who have built up YouTube celebrity or online celebrity. But also the dark side of that are people who have found you know, successful audiences exploiting their family. <laughs> you know, pranking people or scaring or, or using their children and their family. And, and that to me is what's really scary is what people are willing to sacrifice for that internet fame. And that, that's sort of a big theme in this movie. Now, you're also working with someone uh, who you have worked with on a regular basis, Alana Elmer, who I believe is in all your films. Correct me if I'm wrong. She's in almost all of them. Uh, the last, yeah, I've done about five films. She's in, she's in 
forward. Now, in this one, you are very specifically focusing on her face and a number of the reactions, uh, but it's always very honest, very real, and very disturbing. I just want to know about uh, the choices that went up into that, because I don't think I've seen that in a horror movie in a very long time. Oh, that's a good question. I never really thought about that. Again, it's it's really just all those choices are just based on the story. What the, What is the character experiencing? And um, and then trying to make that experience frightening and sort of funny at the same time and trying to find that weird tone. I I love finding tone. And with, with performances and, uh, and with Alana, you know, we're not afraid to put the camera right up there and let her go maybe over the top sometimes with, with the reactions because, I don't know, when, you, when you're terrified, it is your, – your face will contort and you will – you will look terrified, um, and you're also kind of funny looking, you know. So we totally just kept pushing and pushing and pushing to a point where it felt uh, it felt right for the tone of this movie. Now, how did you work in conjunction with your co-director Rob Brenner? Yeah, so Rob and I have a company together, the Boca Collective, and we direct. Um, we just finished co-directing a Netflix series, actually a 13 episode series that's coming out in 2020, and we've co-directed multiple shows, and we've been working in TV together for many, many years, and. Uh, so we are kind of like a two-headed beast. We both think the same. We both trust each other. We have very similar tastes. And so when it comes to film, every, every film we've worked on together, our dynamics are a little bit different. On this particular film, um, I know I did most of the heavy lifting with the writing and storyboarding. And then Rob works as a co-director with me on set on this film, um, helping to execute because we had a very aggressive schedule. We were trying to film this whole movie in 10 days. Oh, geez. And having Rob on board allows me to spread out the crew and, 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 to, and to almost have separate units and sometimes just to work together very quickly. Um, I, I can handle performances and work with actors while he's setting up the shots and, and we can just be more efficient. So the dynamic between us is very different depending on the project and on this one, it's just like working with a, it's like working with a brother who thinks like you and being able to, to leverage that relationship into an efficient workflow. Both you and Rob have a history in reality television and working through that. How did that contribute to making this film and to your flow and working on such a tight schedule? Well, you know, in terms of working on a tight schedule, it works very well. And, you know, we've been working TV for about 15 years, and that's a great training ground. For you know, for delivering on a, on a tight schedule with very limited resources, um, and working under pressure. We both worked on The Amazing Race. Rob directs every season. I worked as a challenge producer for for years on that show. And there's such a there's such a crazy pressure that happens in the moment on that show because you can't even do a second take. You have to be prepared. All that experience serves us very well. On top of that, our crews, our friends that work in these uh, on these different shows with us. Uh, Stuart Cameron, the DOP, Ryan Shaw, who's the DOP on The Amazing Race, came out and helped with lighting. Um, we, we bring the crew and the experience to the table when it comes to making a film like this. But from a storytelling perspective, it's actually a completely different skill set that's not even comparable at all. It's actually the opposite because I storyboard every shot in a program called uh, Frameforge Previous Studio. I build animatics, I plan it all out, and we're just executing um, a very detailed plan, which is, which is typical in, in filmmaking. But you, you know, that never happens in reality TV. It's, it's the opposite approach. And we, and the shows that Rob and I direct are documentary series. That's a whole other skill set where you're creating moments and you're adapting 
to the moment and changing your plan. It's like surfing. You can't you can't uh, control the waves. You can only like choose the style you, uh, that you surf. And all these experiences come together, and they really just help us move fast and and, and allow us to have the confidence to go into a set and just execute uh, a vision. And uh, let's get into, of course, the real reason why everybody is going. It's for the cool kills and the torture and all the gore. That's why people are really there, right? Story's great, but what are they going to do to those people along the way? Talk to me a little bit about how you guys came up with uh, some of the more creative uh, injuries. I'm not going to say exactly what they are, because uh, I'm always fascinated how people come up with this stuff and how they sleep at night. You know, a big influence on me is Guillermo del Toro. I remember an interview, I don't know what documentary it was, but he talked about talked about the way you kill people and if you if you make certain decisions it's much more effective like if you know if you're going to stab somebody you know it's more effective to have them stabbed in the eye <laughs> because that will the audience can can, can it will react differently and uh, it'll be it'll be a more terrifying experience and i just thought especially for that end gag i just imagined that that kill after after that, after that interview thinking like oh what would be a terrible experience it's, it's about like, what is something I've never seen before that uh, is kind of, again, kind of funny, brutal to look at and horrifying. So you're, you're servicing that element of the genre, but also is ex- executable. You know, what can we actually pull off and, and have it be realistic? And all those decisions weigh into these kills. And also, you know, there's another one in the basement. There's another one in the basement I just remembered. That one came to me from walking through uh, Princess Otto. I was trying to think of a great way to kill somebody and I just was walking through Princess Auto and I stumbled upon the crowbars. And I was just looking at them and I started picking up the different crowbars thinking like, oh, this is a, this is a, a heavy, violent. Um, and, and that started the, you know, the creative juices flood, I guess you did. At which point uh, the people at Princess Auto were like, sir, sir, please, sir, if you wouldn't mind putting that down. What are you planning to crow that bar? <laughs> Amazing. And then finally, my last question is, what are you hoping people take out of this movie? How are you hoping people react? Again, I wanted to create an experience for people that feels unlike other horror films. It's this is kind of a horror film for people that don't love, like uh, for people that don't like watching a lot of uh, gory films or horror films. It's very, very different. It, it has a comedic tone to it. The storytelling is it's it's very much a mystery. You know, it's it's kind of I, I like to think that it's, it's it's bending genres a little bit. Um, which again will turn certain people off, but other people will love that about it. So what I'm hoping people take away is just a unique experience, a different way to look at horror films. I don't think a studio would make a film like this. I don't think that, uh, I think we were able, we were in a position to actually make a, a very specific type of movie and we made the movie we wanted to make and creatively took some risks with it. And I, and I just hope people, I just hope people enjoy themselves in theater and, uh, and come out laughing and kind of frightened and, and then hopefully they experience something fresh. Thank you so much, Justin. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And finally, I'm talking to Jonas Chernick and Jeremy Lalonde about James versus his future self. It's not a traditional choice for After Dark. Uh, This film combines elements of rom-com, personal growth, and sci-fi for a very funny, sweet, and sometimes violent look at what happens when a scientist working on a time travel project is visited by his future self hell-bent on stopping him from mastering time travel. Jonas stars as James, Jeremy directs, and the script was co-written by them together, and it features this bananas cast that you're going to hear about in the episode. Jeremy's been on the show twice before. I love both Jeremy and Jonas's past work, and you can check out both of them together and independently in How to Plan an Orgy in a Small Town, The Go-Getters, Borealis, and My Awkward Sexual Adventure. Here's Jonas and Jeremy. The first voice you're going to hear is Jonas. 
Toronto After Dark Film Festival. Why is this the right movie for this festival? That festival, as you know, is, is one of the top 10 genre festivals in the world. And I think that they like to balance their programming. Toronto After Dark, you'll see a lot of the gory horror stuff, the really, you know, visceral stuff. They're excited about showing something that's not that. This is a heartwarming, a kind of a sweet sci-fi movie. It has enough time travel in it to satisfy the geeks, but it's really kind of a a little bit of counter-programming. I don't know how many feel-good movies they program at the festival, so we're really excited about being their kind of, you know, their kind of heartwarming, charming rom-com this year with the sci-fi angle. Yeah, they had one of their feel-good torture porn movies drop out, so I think we, we, we fit into that slot nicely. Those torture porn movies often have a lot of heart. You know, there's a lot of guts involved in making them. I get it yeah. 100%. Yeah. All right, right. The heart, yeah, usually the heart in those movies are usually beating in somebody's hand. It's a bit more liberal. <laughs> As they've ripped it from someone's chest. Now, you guys have already screened this at the Edmonton International Film Festival. Is that right? That's right. We were the opening night gala there uh, in uh, September 26th. And how was the audience reaction? It was amazing. Yeah, it was was great. We've screened that. That was our third festival so far. We also were in, in Sudbury and Calgary. It's been pretty overwhelmingly... Amazing. I think Jonas and I have been felt really, really blessed and lucky to have audiences reacting and kind of walking away from the film, not just laughing, but coming up to us after and letting us know how much it touched them kind of emotionally and how it made them think about their own lives, which is kind of ultimately, I think, things that Jonas and I are looking to do in our films. Not, not to say it's easy to make people laugh, but there's certain things that we know we can do to, to get laughs out of people. But I think when we can connect with people on an emotional and intellectual level, I mean, I think that's when Jonas and I feel like we're, we're, we, we've succeeded. For us, these three festivals that we've just played leading, leading up to Toronto After Dark, they, they were the first times that we saw the movie with real audiences. It was exciting for us. We think we have an idea of where we're hitting a nerve or where we're getting a laugh or where we're getting a gasp. But until you see it with an audience, you don't really know. And so Jeremy and I sit at the, sit in the theater together, all three of these festivals, and and just kind of glance over at each other in the dark when we get at when we get an audible reaction from the audience, or when we you can really feel when the audience is with you. Yeah, and this is the point in the process where I find I learn the most as a filmmaker watching it with different audiences in different cities and ideally different countries too, you start to get a real sense of what what works and what doesn't work. And I find this is where I get the most education as a filmmaker. Now, Jonas, you and I talked previously about the challenge of casting for chemistry when you're Skyping in auditions, because obviously you've got some big Hollywood players in this. Daniel Stern, Cleopatra Coleman, Frances Conroy, who's one of my all-time favorites, and boy, did I get excited when she showed up. Tell me a little bit about what it was like having to Skype in these auditions and casting chemistry just from that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting process. Jeremy's kind of known in, in Canada and certainly within the acting community as being an actor's director. He's really good at casting. And if you've seen any of his previous films, it, it, that's one of the great, one of his great skills is he just, he really knows actors. The first po- point was just kind of trusting Jeremy. And none of, none of those actors, Francis Conroy, Cleopatra Coleman, Daniel Stern, none of them auditioned. These are heavy hitters for a little indie Canadian movie like ours, which feels like a bigger movie, but it's it's relatively small. These are these are big names. But Daniel Stern, we got on a Skype call with him, and it wasn't an audition so much. It was it was more like him interviewing us, really, <laughs> uh, which was fine. That's what we expected. 
Uh, and we could tell right away that there was a banter between him and I um, on the Skype call, and you could just kind of feel the dynamic come alive. I mean, I, I remember, you know, looking at Jeremy halfway through the call, and both of us, just, our eyes were lit up. We knew that we we knew that this was going to be something special, and and of course it was. And and with Cleopatra, it was it was kind of the opposite. It wasn't until she showed up on set and we got to do a read through with her and meet her on the day that we realized what what kind of magic we had with her because you cast Cleopatra Coleman based on seeing her on TV work and obviously she's a very physically stunning beautiful woman but then you get her in the room and she starts reading and you realize she has this profoundly childlike innocence and this quality to her that that kind of goes against the edgy shaved head that she had and the and the you know stunning beauty and it all came together in this package and just you made you fall in love with with Courtney right away and we just knew we knew we were in great shape and then Francis Conroy I mean you knew what you're getting from the start there I mean all you have to do is have watched you know Six Feet Under or American Horror Story you know what you're getting and she brought her a game so we got we got really lucky with this cast. And the nice thing is I was able to have a call with Cleo in advance. And so I that, I got the first preview of her being actually a bit of a nerd like we are. You see her in her Instagram photos. And I think you, your mind just goes to cliches. And I was like, how could this stunning beauty also be a nerd deep down? But but she is. And that got me really excited, too. So like Jonas said, when she arrived on, on to do a day or two of rehearsal before we started shooting, it was just... We, we knew how much more lucky we were than we already thought. In addition to that, you guys have this fantastic ensemble of actors that you work with on a regular basis. Jeremy, your films are often ensemble films. So how does that kind of work? Do you, like, write something specifically with Tommy Amber Peary in mind, or are you like, hey, what are you doing next week? Like, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we wrote Meredith for Tommy. I mean, I love to play with Tommy. I think we knew there would be a sister character. And even though her and Jonas have played uh, lovers in a previous movie of mine, I think there's something fun in, in letting people's chemistry build off of each other and knowing that they would have a dynamic because they played together before. But we knew that a lot of the other roles we'd be going out to and, and trying to attach big, exciting names to the project. So we kind of just wrote just kind of characters, which is something I haven't done in a while because I've been writing indie Canadian movies knowing that I'd be casting amongst really talented locals that I I have access to and I'm friends with. Well, Jeremy, let me stick with you for just a second. So you're fresh off winning a Canadian Screen Award for uh, Baroness Von Sketch and your work on that. How has working on a sketch show, specifically for television, how has that affected your feature filmmaking? Oh, I mean, I think what's great about working in sketch, you don't have a lot of time to meander. And so it really helps you focus and get down to the core of something. So I think that's the kind of thing that's really, really helpful in that, especially you know, working as a director and an editor, I just, I know what I'm going to use, what I'm not going to use. It makes you more efficient. Uh, but also it lets you find ways to play with alts in a way that uh, that sometimes you don't have that, that skill set if you haven't worked on those kind of things. So I think definitely, you know, having directed the season of Baroness on Sketch, it definitely helped out and helped to kind of fine tune and craft my skills in that area for sure. I mean, this movie's crazy tight. Like, it never feels like it's overstaying. It's welcome. All the jokes just show up. They're quick. It's awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no worries. I liked it a lot. Uh, Jonas, and talking about your performance in this, I mean, all of your performances are these incredibly deep, vulnerable little messes that you just explode all over the screen with and we get, you wa- we get to watch you attempt to clean it up, which all the best movies are about. When 
when you're writing this, how much of yourself are you comfortable with exposing? Or are you just like, just put it in. This terrible thing happened to me last week. I'm still dealing with it. Throw it in. <laughs> that's really funny because I, that's literally that was uh, that was my uh, my therapy session this week was talking <laughs> about that. I'm not even joking. It, <laughs> it's funny. I, I think that it's it's probably subconscious when I'm writing, especially when I'm writing with a partner like Jeremy. It's subconscious. I'm I'm very much an actor that that believes I my my whole my method or my methodology, my approach to acting is that acting is about revealing the self and being honest. Uh, I feel like each time you see a great performance or a performance by an actor, you should feel like you're getting to know that a- that actor a little bit better. Uh, I'm not about disappearing in a character that's completely different from myself. And so, so very much when I'm acting, I'm trying to bring myself to the character and really just expose truth and vulnerability. In the writing, it's a little bit different. Uh, it's, it's hard for, I don't really imagine myself in the role when I'm writing. I'm really just locked into character and story. And it's kind of, they're kind of two separate things. It's not until we get on set in front of the camera that I put on my acting hat. But I would say in, in this case, we knew, we knew that James was going to be played by me. And so I think we both wrote to, to my strengths. Because I like to write characters who make bad choices at the beginning and and are are kind of lost and messy and kind of find their way. One of the joys of this movie watching this movie is there's a I won't give anything away, but there's a there's a point where there's a a, a conflict between myself and Cleopatra Coleman's character Courtney. I say things that that make the audience groan. No, don't say that. It's one of those moments where you're having an argument and, and I'm, everything that comes out of James's mouth is worse than the last thing. He just keeps digging a deeper hole and realizing that he just doesn't know what to say or how to be. And that's late, that's almost late in the movie. And you still hope that you get to, a chance to to redeem the character that tries to dig himself out. And I'm really interested in that as a writer and as an actor. Now, obviously, the story and the characters in this are what really make it pop. They make it rich. But there is a sci-fi element to it. It is. That's why part of the reason it's playing at Toronto After Dark. Let's talk about the difficulties on a large and general scale of making a time travel movie, shall we? I mean, (laughs) smartly, you guys kind of just touch on the rules about paradoxes and how the technology works in this world, uh, but you don't go full primer. So how did you find the balance of the rules that would make sense, but that the science jargon and the actual rules if that wouldn't overwhelm the actual sweet story at the core. I like the phrase full primer. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Jeremy and I being nerds and, and loving time travel movies and loving time travel theory, we we actually we actually built a much thicker time travel science world than what appears in the finished movie. And you know, and I'll credit I'll credit Jeremy for a lot of this in that the instinct is to get real geeky and to really go deep into it. And then I think the art of it is to then pull, particularly for this this kind of movie, which is really you know a romantic comedy, is to pull back on all of that as much as you can so that you really just let the character and the story take center stage so that the focus isn't on the time travel and the science and the jargon but you have just enough in there to justify what you're doing and tell your story. And I think that was finding that balance. Um, ultimately, we had a lot more time travel, a lot more science in the in the film, in the script, uh, right up until we started shooting. And then we really pulled back as much as we could to just let the characters in the story take you through it. For us, it's like we wanted to just get to the heart of it and not let 
all that science stuff overwhelmed because because like, science you know time travel can be very very complicated kind of what we glommed onto was this idea of really embracing the theme which is basically a man who is obsessed with the past and the future and needs to learn how to live in the present and so we thought well let's be clever and tell a time travel movie that takes place entirely in the present about being in the present. That leads me to my final question for you guys. So when people have these extensive filmographies, I'm always curious as to why you make this movie at this point in your career now. Jeremy was actually developing a really big movie, uh, like a big, not quite time travel, but kind of a Groundhog Day-esque action movie, like a big thing that I, I was actually help, you know, working with him a little bit on, or consulting on his script. And it was a really exciting project. And he, and he said to me after we kind of worked together on that script that he wanted to make a film that wasn't as enormous, but that was kind of in that ballpark. But he didn't have any ideas. You know, did I have any ideas for a kind of a sci-fi-ish character story that didn't, didn't need $20 million, but that could be made, you know, relatively modest budget? And, you know, I said, actually, I actually do have a, a nucleus of an idea. And I, I pitched him. It was so simple. The idea really was just... You know, a, a guy, a scientist about to discover time travel is kidnapped by his future self who wants him to stop. That was all I had. And Jerry said, well, let's let's work on that. Let's flush that out. So it started off as specifically Jeremy wanting to, to work on something that was in this genre that was a stepping stone to something bigger. And then in, in itself, it kind of turned into its own thing that I think was bigger than we ever than we imagined. I don't think mm-hmm. when we sat down to flush it out that we thought we were going to have like Daniel Stern, like Daniel Stern and Francis Conroy, and 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 make it on the scale that we did. But that's sort of where it came from. I think as I move along, like I come up, and I think for you know for a couple of years there, I was especially known as the sex comedy guy. And not that I have any issue with that, you know, I like uh, sex comedies as much as the next person. But you know, you don't want to make the same thing over and over again for your entire career. You know, Jonas and I both have children ourselves, and so even though this is by no means a kids movie. I think a, a lot of the movies I'm kind of interested in, in making now are kind of fit closer to the, the movies that I loved from childhood. So stuff like Back to the Future and Groundhog Day and movies that just stick with me that I'm starting to introduce to my own children. are Those are the kind of things that are, are appealing to me as I, as I grow as a filmmaker. And so this kind of felt like it fit in that wheelhouse. This is you know, one of those movies that would have been made in the 90s and maybe even early 2000s and the 80s for sure. But we're not making movies like this anymore, sadly. You know, we're making, uh, you know, especially in Canada, we're making like really kind of dour coming of age, you know, dramas. And that's about it. And then on the other side in, in the States, we're seeing like, you know, big tentpole movies or, you know, some indie fare too. But it's like we're not really making these movies that kind of fit in the middle that are kind of for everyone. You know, we're not it's not that we're trying to make movies just for an audience. We want to make movies that connect with people and with ourselves. But it's like there's this like gaping hole of movies that you know we all grew up loving that just people aren't making anymore and i think that's where we kind of see ourselves going especially in canada i mean you know you're a canadian movie junkie too becky so you know it's rare to find a movie like this coming from canadian filmmakers that's that's a certified canadian movie we're talking talking about a you know a, a genre movie that's big and and glossy and beautiful that has that is that is made specifically for an audience, it's not. It's not. A, this is not an art film. This is not a a social justice. This is not a commentary. I mean, there's a lot going on in this movie, but this is a big, fun, laugh, cry, cheer out loud 
uh, audience-friendly, warm hug of a movie. And we don't see a lot of those coming from our peers here in Canada. And I don't quite know why, but I do feel like that's where Jeremy and I feel like our sensibilities lie. If I may pay you guys another compliment, it also plays in its sandbox. Like you never overstretch and you attempt to do the thing that like I will call out foolproof for doing where it's trying to compete on like a $20 million American budget level without the same story structure, without the actual budget to compete on that level or the cast. I mean, Ryan Reynolds, but like, you know, pre-Deadpool Ryan Reynolds. Um, <laughs> you guys are exactly where you need to be to tell this kind of story with the right budget, the right cast, um, the right amount of like heart and warmth. Like it feels like a family movie a la Spielberg's 80s, uh, 80s kind of vein, like E.T., where everyone can kind of get a piece of it. That's amazing. That's a great compliment. I will accept that. Thank you. You're yeah, welcome. and that's definitely, that's definitely something that Scott McClellan, the, the DP, and I worked on. Like We watched a lot of Spielberg movies because I wanted to kind of like use his visual uh, storytelling the way that he like lets, a, lets the camera drift and flow and and it, the camera movements are always motivated by you know the moment from the actor and not necessarily motivated by the filmmaker and so we really studied that a lot and took a cue from that and how we designed the look of the film so thank you that the, the fact that that kind of like felt underneath it means that we've somewhat accomplished our goal Oh, yeah. No, it's great. Uh, great. Well, I'll let you guys go because I've already overstayed. Uh, I've spent five more minutes with you than I did with anybody else. So. Oh, wow. Well, I know. I'd like to think we deserve it. Yeah, we're, we're, well, there are two of us. So maybe that, that, that defends it, you know, the extra five minutes. But thank you very much. It's been really fun talking to you. And, and uh, thanks for everything you do to promote Canadian movies. We, uh, we appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.